Is there enough German wine in your life? Aside from some of the most incredible Riesling on this earth, Germany is the third largest and one of the most acclaimed producers of Pinot Noir in the world. There, the grape is known as Spätburgunder. Discover more about German wine at GermanWineUSA.com or on social media at GermanWineUSA. This is a moment in wine and hip-hop brought to you by Crew Love, blending wine and hip-hop at the highest level. Wine and hip-hop, wine and music. Tell me about it. You know what it is? Check this out. Oh, yeah. You'll be the life of the party. Wine and hip-hop really mirrors the, the conversations that we have in my office about wine and music. Yeah, what's good, y'all? Your man, Jermaine Showtime Stone, a.k.a. The Wolf of Wine, a.k.a. The Zara Vibes, a.k.a. Young Thanos. I'm just out here collecting Infinity Stones. We have a legend in the game. I'm privileged to have my man, James Molesworth here. James, how you doing, man? I'm doing good, man. I'm trying to live up to that legendary status for you. <laughs> you a legend already, man. You guys are, you guys are cranking out some pretty good magazines at Wine Spectator, I gotta right. say. Right. <laughs> uh, so thank you for joining the show. You know, I, I felt like this is just, it's really cool to get you in this setting because I don't think people realize how much reverence you have for hip hop. You know, I see the records, I, you know, um, and I, I, I know that anyone that's a record collector gets into digging. And so you respect the culture. Yeah, I think, and you know, music and wine are the two things that go together because of that collecting side of things. But not collecting to just hoard it for value, collecting it to enjoy it and appreciate it over time. And then just that constant pursuit. It's a lifelong pursuit. Yeah, yeah. So um, we, we have to introduce our hip-hop fans mm -hmm. to... James. All the wine people know you already, but we got to get the hip-hop fans tuned in. Um, so, who is your rap spirit animal? That's a tough one, because there's a couple <laughs> that I like, but uh, I would actually go with KRS-One. Oh, I love the teacher. <laughs> the teacher. <laughs> I got one question. One question. Kelly. Who am I? The MC. Lottie I don't wear Versace. I wear DJs out quickly at the bar. Who am I? If you like me, hip hop is in your box. Who am I? The MC. <laughs> I mean, to me, he. I mean, even though he's from the Boogie Down and I'm from Queens, I, I, I crossed the border for KRS One because he was one of the first when I was in the late teenage, early 20s of my life, where the message was becoming very clear. And right. I was like, this is someone that made an impression on me, and I just kind of I fell in love with his his style and everything about it. It was it was no holds barred with him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. KRS. Like I like the fact that he's the teacher, and you know you think like peace and everything like that, but he completely destroyed MC Shan. <laughs> in the same battle, he, with like ruthless, he didn't even care. He was very very no holds barred. <laughs> I love the album covers. I also like how he evolved over time too. Yeah, uh, you know, definitely. KRS, he has, you know, that he's like, I'm from the Bronx, so he's like a god to me. You know, he's the guy. He, hopefully, KRS, if you're watching this, come join us on the show one day, man. Let's see what your palate is like. <laughs> <laughs> cool, man. But, um, so, growing up in Queens, what kind of impact did hip-hop have on you? So, I'm growing up in Queens in uh, the early 80s. I don't want to date myself too much here. Um, but I was coming out of... Uh, my parents' musical background, which was either classical and opera, 
or hippie rock and classic rock like Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. So I, that's what I was growing up on. And that's what I was listening to. And then, you know, it was Run DMC, it was LL Cool J, it was those early days. And I remember listening to some of that stuff and being like, Ooh, what is that? <laughs> and I just, I just flipped. I just did a, like a 180. And the music was all around at that time. Um, then I went to high school at Stuyvesant High School. I got there shortly after the Beastie Boys had left. And, mm. and so it was like, it was that moment where everything was just kind of exploding. Right. And you'd go to the parties and someone would play Led Zeppelin and then they'd play LL Cool J. And so it was like the, everything was a mix and a jumble all at once. And it just, uh, the seed was planted right from there. Yeah. A lot of people talk about how um, rock had such a um, strong connection to hip hop in the 80s because it was just like that rebellious music you know that that's like i watch movies like wild style for example mm -hmm. i just I, i wanted to be there yeah. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, i had my ideas with the fat laces a little break dancing I, i did a little break dancing in high school I, i'm glad there's no video of it <laughs> i know that's before like nowadays that's the thing you can't do anything nowadays it's all on camera we we were able to to do silly shit back in the day that's why it's the golden age yeah. that, that's why that i always wondered why they called it the golden era that is why <laughs> dope man well um today you picked the rhymes and i picked the wine okay. y'all didn't y'all didn't see that one coming did you <laughs> all right so you picked um tribe called quest versus from the abstract yeah as they say the abstract as they call him um Have you been a, a huge Tribe fan for a long time? Yeah, I mean that they they and De La Soul would probably be the two groups that you know through college and then. What was the crew like? It was, it was a crew. Like what? Um, it was the it was De La Soul Tribe, uh, the Jungle Brothers. The brothers, uh, Brand Nubians might have been a little after that. Diggable Planets was in that mix. Yeah, um, there was there was a lot of cool music, and they were all in it together at that time. It was it was fun. Dope. Dope. Yeah, man. And, um, native tongues. Native tongues. Native tongues. Yes. That, I was like, I'm yes. like, what is that? So, Black sheep. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, important question for the, um, for the tribe fans. Low End Theory or Midnight Marauders? Which one would you go with? Um, I, I like Low End Theory because of the one song on there with Ron Carter on bass that's really the one that took hold on me, but I think Midnight Marauders is a better album. It's a better concept album, and also that backdrop of it being set against a record show uh, with the announcer, doing yeah. the, the, that to me hit, because I was, a, I was on radio as a DJ in my college years, and to me that, as a concept album, I think that was their, their highest wow. uh, attainment at that point. Because, you know, Low End Theory is, I think, 91, and um, Midnight Marauders is 93, and so they were, they were progressing at that point. Yeah. They were very prolific. They were putting a lot of stuff out. Mm -hmm. To me, Midnight Marauders is the one. And so with with um, verses from the abstract, I went with the '97 Chateau Fontenay. Had to be on point, you know. We got royalty up in the building, so you <laughs> you bring royalty from Rome. Um, but you you mentioned uh, um, DJ coming yeah. up in college. So yeah. like, can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So uh, the first two years I was in college, I partied. And uh, so the college is for yeah, isn't it? The, the GPA was not strong, <laughs> and my parents had a little chat with me, and they said, "Look, look, going forward, you either have to get passing grades, or we don't pay for college." And I mm -hmm. went, "Oh, okay." So I, I just kind of doubled down on all the things, and I joined the student government. I joined the radio station. I picked up uh, an Afro American Studies minor to go anthropology. I just did everything I could possibly do mm -hmm. to get that college experience. And the radio show was 
one of the things that I just miss the most about college. Um, so I got a DJ show. I was doing a jazz show, a weekly jazz show, um, and there were some great jazz greats in the department there. Archie Shep, who's still alive, Yusef Latif, Max Roach, people like that. So I got great exposure to it. Um, and then at night, that was the morning guy, and then at night, you know, the hip-hop shows were on at night, and I would often go down to the studio and hang out there because I was also the program director and whatever, and just watching um, those DJs do their shows. It was just a great interplay between... Mm. Uh, you know, us at UMass, Amherst, which is where I was. Uh, and I just loved it. And it was the one thing that I really wish I could have continued when I got out of school and I came back to New York. I tried to get a job in jazz or music or radio or anything. And mm-hmm. all the doors just got slammed in my face because it was like, you know, you need yeah. to know somebody to get in that yeah. kind of gig. But, you know, I kept the vinyl collection. And then, uh, you know, over time, you know, maybe it waned a little bit. But then it came back in the last decade or so and I've been collecting again. And, and I, I mean, I don't, I don't DJ I do a curated music show where I'll right. bring my vinyl and I'll play some records and, and do that. So I, I don't have a laptop where I'm mixing. <laughs> not my no Serato, you know. That's not my bag. Listen, listen. It might. Give it some time. <laughs> Give it some time. You never know. But it's, it's fascinating, though, when, when, for instance, I'll do a set of music and I'll play maybe the the jazz or funk tunes that were sampled by hip-hop and then I'll play the hip-hop song after that mm. and you can see the people in the, in the room like maybe they're not hearing everything because they're at a wine bar or whatever but they do that thing like this you know and they're like oh wow what was that <laughs> like, right. there's always an original you discover yeah. where the original is um, that's what hip-hop is based on you know I remember what was that like late probably like late 90s early 2000s people started talking a lot of shit about people that were sampling but no one really thinks about the fact that that goes back to the essence of hip hop. Like it started from sampling, like yeah. the sampling disco records, you know. And they were they were paying homage to those artists that had come before them, and they were also rejuvenating them at the same time exactly. too. I mean, the, the smart people who were listening to the details would go back and listen to those records for the first time, and I, I just found that fascinating because that's where the deep dive, the crate digging. The lifelong pursuit is when you find that stuff on, a, on mm-hmm. the record. You're like, ah, oh, man, they use this and whatever, and you're like, yeah, it yeah. <laughs> so DJing, that's what started you into record collecting. Yeah, because uh, the benefit of being a college radio DJ was uh, when you ordered from the record companies, they sold you their records for like two bucks or something like that, <laughs> which at the time was still a lot of money for a college kid with no job. But you know, I, I would load up on records, and that's not how it works anymore. Some of the stuff's kind of expensive now, but that definitely what kicked me into vinyl. Mm. And then over, over time, I, I made the mistake of letting my vinyl just kind of move to the background, and I switched to CDs when everyone switched to CDs. Yeah. Make a long story short, I pulled my record player out one day, put a record on for, for shits and giggles, and I went, what have you been doing? Like, the sound was that whole warm sound that just came over, and I just everything came rushing back about the memories of, of vinyl, mm. and I, I haven't stopped since. I mean, I, I, I don't listen to a CD or anything like that. I mean, I'm at streaming oh, in the car from Desperate, right. but at home, it's vinyl only. Wow, wow. It really is a better sound. I um, I interviewed, uh, you know you know Soil Pimp? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I interviewed him the other day. His record collection is serious. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he's serious. Now, honestly, after, after the episode, I went out, I, I got a record collector. I don't have any vinyl yet, mm-hmm. but I got my dad's, like, old, um, I have a bunch of his old Jamaican records, like, Guys like Yellow Man and um, mm-hmm. Ninja Man, all those guys. Um, but you know, try finding clean copies of that stuff. Oh man. my it's gosh! Yeah, yeah. No, like, people didn't take care of the records back then. They thought they were indestructible. You know, they used to go around and 
Maybe you're rolling something on them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. the, the, the gatefold covers were the best, right? Yeah. Sometimes you go in the old store, you open up the gatefold, and the old little dried up leaves might fall Just out. Just fall out. <laughs> Get a little surprise in there every once in a while. You never know. Yeah. A little more than you bargained for. Yeah. <laughs> so we're, we're drinking some from Rhone Valley. And Roan is um, that's one of your tasting beats, right? Yes. Yeah, so. um, what was it about Roan that that like stood out to you? So yeah, so at Wine Spectator, I cover the Roan Valley, Bordeaux, California Cabernet, Port, Finger Lakes, a couple other little things. But Roan is my heart. Roan is my love. Um, my first trip to France, I was eight years old, and my dad took me over, and we were in Paris for a couple of months while he did some teaching, and then he took me down to the Southern Roan for. The last fling. I didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> he just took me down there, and I remember uh, him carrying back some bottles of Gigal. I remember the labels because I remember the, the colorful dot neck strip on that Gigal bottle. And we were walking to the train late at night to go back to Paris after a couple of days down there, and the handle broke, and the bottles fell out, and they smashed all over the sidewalk. And I remember the look on my father's face of just like. <laughs> the man didn't speak for like three days. But we got back to Paris, and. and for whatever reason happened during that trip, it, I didn't realize it at the time, but the love of the Rome was, was planted there. Mm. And I've always, uh, I mean, to, to cover it professionally is a dream come true. Um, everything about it is, is what I love about French culture. It's, it's between the Northern Rome and the Southern Rome, you go from the butter cuisine of Lyon to the olive oil cuisine of Provence. You go from the valley of the north to the, the flat of the south. You go from Syrah to Grenache. There's just so much in that valley, and the people are the salt of the earth. They're just the warmest... Uh, most mm. welcoming people, and um, yeah, I mean, during COVID, I haven't been to France now for a year and a half. I've, I missed uh, two vintages. I, it's I, I didn't. I always treated every trip over there as like this might be your last trip, so do everything you possibly can. Yeah. I didn't realize that taking a year off. I'm so glad I had that approach, and stacked up as much as I could in those trips, and would like wear myself ragged trying to do as much work as I could just to just to get around on the road because I, I can't wait to get back. But it's beautiful. The wines are terrific. Uh, this. This is a smoke show here. Yeah, this is Ponce. crazy, man. Um, one of the great domains down there. Um, and, yeah, it's just it's where my heart is. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to um, I wanted to pick something uh, that was going to stand out, something special, something rare. Uh, you know, that, that Tribe song. Like, Tribe, they're legends, you know, so we had to go with something legendary. And when you're sitting with, I feel like when you're chilling with company, you should try to... Um, bring something that that uh that speaks to them you know so thinking about what you write what your writing is like and um some of the valleys that you cover i felt like this was the well, I appreciate this was it. the this jam is, this is nice and and i've learned that from the way the vignerons and their own host too is they always open a wine that they think is something that you will resonate with or that, that they're trying to pay homage to you with that with that choice and that to me always struck a chord with me. They're not just opening their wines or not just opening the newest vintage. There's always something, there's always a reason that they're opening what they open. And when you figure it out, you're like, oh, okay. And yeah. then you like tip the cap and you say, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So when I pair wine and music, um, I think about, uh, you know, mostly where do I want to enjoy this bottle? You know, is this bottle creating the vibe that matches the setting of the song that I'm listening to? So we're going to check out some Tribe Called Quest right now. Versus from the abstract, we're going to see if this bottle matches the vibe. I'm moving, yes, I'm moving because my mouth is on the motor. Use the coast in the morning to avoid the funky odor. Can't help being funky, I'm the funky abstract rubber. 
monkey in the sense, but I play the undercover. Once had a fetish, fetish for some booty. Now I'm getting funky in my rapping, that's my duty. Brothers tend to jock on the style in particular. If you got the ego like some brothers, then I'll get with you. But if I don't pursue, then I just don't give a. My motto in the 90s is be happy making ducks. So we're back. We just vibed out some verses from the abstract. The vibe was right, the wine was right. We're chilling once again. We're back here with James Molesworth. Um, so, James, we, we were talking a little bit about um, your favorite wine region. Uh, do you have a favorite producer of the region? I do, but it's one of those things that I'm always careful to, to oh, yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, as a, as a journalist, I can't play favorites. I taste blind. I, I call it like it is. It's a very kind of clinical approach. And then there's the stuff that I, that I drink at home. And what might be weird to some people is there's some wines that I might give a really big score to that I would not put in my own cellar. Mm. And that is because, as a journalist, I think it's important to re review wines based on quality first, style second, and not let my personal palate preference dictate what I'm telling you or suggesting to you as a reader that you should go out and buy. How do you separate your, your personal preference? Like So uh, maybe like the simplest example would be Chardonnay. I don't particularly like a big butterball Chardonnay, right. but I know a lot of people do. And then I know that there are examples of that that are good that people enjoy. So I have to check myself and say, okay, maybe I don't drink a lot of big buttery Chardonnay, but this is a good one. Right. And this one is not so good. And at the same point, while I like a more steely, minerally style, there are some that are not that good. And I can't elevate that just because I like the style. Mm. And, you know, taking yourself out of the equation is not easy, but if you train yourself over time, and I think that's, I got an anthropology degree when I was in college, I think being observant, but from a side and not injecting yourself into it is the key. I honestly don't think that a lot of the critics out there right now are doing it that way. I think they say, this is what I like, so this is the best version of that. That's fine, but I just wish people would understand that there's, there's two approaches, which is the sort of bon vivant approach, which is, I love this, I love this, I love this, and then the other one's like, look, if you like old school, this is your jam, or if you like a fruit bomb, this is your jam, right. and let people make an educated decision. Right. And it takes time to to train yourself that way. Yeah, no, and, that's... and the thing is with the Rome, which I love, I have to temper my enthusiasm. And then for regions where maybe, uh, you know, they're not wines that I personally love but I respect, I have to not be too down on it. I have to, you know, try, try to keep everything on the same level. Right, right. No, that's smart, man. Uh, and that's, it's, um, it's the right thing for the reader. Um, how did you get into journalism? So again, going back to the, the college days, everything comes comes from there. One of the yeah. things I did was uh, uh, the college newspaper. I was an editor there. I used to review jazz shows uh, in the area, and I got into writing that way. And then when I came back to the city, uh, there was no work for me in that regard. So I took a job in a retail wine shop, and I was just, you know, the stock boy moving stuff around the basement. Did that for a few years. Then I was a sommelier for a year, and then I bounced to Wine Spectator. And I was there in the tasting department setting up the tastings for the, for the senior editors. And after a couple of years, one of them left. And they said, well, you're next man up. Wow. So I became a taster and I started writing. But even though I had written in college and had some, some writing skills, I had to kind of reboot. So I went back, got a, took a journalism class and, and you know, sharpened my skills in that regard. And luckily, you know, I had great editors at Wine Spectator over the years, guys like Tom Matthews and Bruce Anderson and my mentors there who, who brought me up and helped me. Uh, learn how to write about wine and learn how to be a journalist. Learn what the you know how you how you keep, you know approach things ethically. Right. Uh, learn how to write a news story and not just write you know what it is that you like. You have to be able to explain things. You have to get the facts in there. You have to put both sides in there. Yeah. 
and I really am glad that I that I learned that approach. It might seem a little outdated these days because everyone just wants to talk about their version, or maybe there's a little more self promotion from from certain aspects of mm-hmm. it. To me, it's it's news, it's information. You want to support family-owned wineries. You want to support people that have a good story. You want to tell that story, but you got to educate at the, fir- at the first thing. And I can entertain, but I got to educate first. So right. those two things together, and that's how I love to write. Yo, just want to take a sec to give a big shout to my people at Wide Roots Imports. The role of a good wine importer is to tell the story of the land that the wines are from. Wide Roots does that in a very judgment-free way. They're an educational resource for people that are new to wine, and if I'm rocking with them, you know they keep some fire on deck. Right now, bringing in wines from Spain and Italy. For more info, go to widerootsllc.com now. And it is it is a tough job, man, because in wine especially, there are so many stories. Like, how do you choose which stories to tell? Yeah, that's, that's one, again, where you have to sort of pull yourself out of it. There might be a lot of people that have the same story, but how do you, which one's authentic? What, you know, you have to get a feel for it. First thing is we taste blind at Wine Spectator, so I don't know what it is I'm tasting when I taste it in terms of producer or price. I just know that I'm tasting a Chateauneuf, period. Mm-hmm. So when I pull the bags off, I'm like, oh, I don't know this guy, or oh, that's better than I'm used to for them. And, and so you get data points that way, and then when you go and visit the regions, you get the other data point, which is the context. Who are these people? How long have they been doing this? Are they making changes? Uh, you know, how do they approach winemaking? Are they organic? Are they not? And then you just you put those people to the fore and you push them and you help them get their story out to the readers and that's the way I look at it. My job is to sort of connect the reader to the domain because the domain isn't always capable of doing their own education or doing their own publicity or that sort of thing. So I want to get their story out mm. and it's just a it's a gut feel. You know, yeah. who's, who's doing the good work? Who's doing it in a way that I think is respectful for wine, that treats wine as an agricultural product, that's something to be enjoyed with, with food and people and to be enjoyed often but in moderation and those that's the the gestalt, the, the vibe that I want to put out. Right, right. It's funny, man. Like nowadays, especially since the um, since uh, the pandemic happened, there um, are a lot of people that are changing jobs in the wine industry, and I feel like there's a ton of content creators that have come out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, how, what's your take on that, and, and how do you feel that that affects journalism overall? I think. I, look, I like social media. I have fun on it. I'm active on it. I think it's important. It's not going away. I also think that print journalism isn't going away and, and good ethical writing isn't going away. So the, the key is, well, how do we mesh those together? So I look at what other people are doing out there on social media, and I look at what other people are still doing in the print world, and I try to pull from that things that I think work. I'm not going to lie. You're always looking to, to borrow other things that, that work as well as trying to come up with your own ideas. There is a lot of content out there, and my, my thing is I just wish people would take a second to understand where that content is coming from. Is it coming from someone who has a financial connection to the thing that they're talking about? Is it coming from someone who only talks about themselves over and over and over again, or the book they wrote, or whatever it is? Or is it coming from someone who says, look, I got no horse in this race. Here are the things that I tasted. These are the things that I want to talk about. Mm-hmm. And what's their approach? And are they taking a, a diverse approach? Are they taking an inclusionary approach? Are they talking about how we make this a bigger industry going forward and we make it sustainable, we make it organic, whatever it is? I think those are the things that work. There's a lot out there. You're right. And, and the pandemic has forced everyone kind of to work out of their homes and do this other stuff. Right. It's easy. And I think that's 
part of the problem. It's easy to snap some photos and put them on Instagram. Mm -hmm. the, the key is, you know, how are you doing it? What's what's your approach? And I think you can get that vibe from from people on, you know, who's who's authentic and who's just kind of doing it to do it. Yeah, yeah. For me, it, it, it's the same thing. There's um, authenticity is, is super important. It's like, you know, I, I always say, don't do it for the attention. Do it for the intention. You know, and that just following those simple rules, I think you'll actually be able to develop quality content. But it feels like there's um, a ton of people that think just quantity over quality and, it's a, you know, it's, just it's get stuff the out around. there, you know. But, yeah, I'm the type of person that, you know, we're um, not so shameless plug. We're dropping um, Wine and Hip Hop TV mm -hmm. um, over the weekend. And by the time this episode comes out, the show will be out. But um, we've been working on that for three years. <laughs> you know, like a lot of the footage is from our first podcast and not doing it the right way. And, you know, um, taking a deeper look at the footage. So that's ultimately what the show is about. Us taking a deeper look at all of this footage behind the show that we've been recording for years. You know, um, you got to do your you got to do your own thing. You got to be able to also look at yourself and, and say, well, this is working or this isn't working. But even though this isn't working, I believe in this, and so I'm just going to stick with this format for a while. There are posts that I put up that, you know, for all intents and purposes, they bomb in terms of the engagement or whatever. Like, but I'm like, no, that was me, and I'm right. fine with that. Exactly. You can't worry about that, and eventually either it, people will come around to it or they won't. You can't worry about that. You've got to do your own thing and what you believe in. If you're chasing something else, some formula, some algorithm, yeah. No. Exactly. It's, and it's hard work. It takes years to, it, to come up with this It stuff. really does. Like, And the thing is, like, this stuff is... You know, trying to find how you express yourself and truly express yourself in a genuine way. It's just it's just not easy, man. Like I, you know, I see some stuff out there. Sometimes I'd love to jump in and help people more. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> um, what are you going to do? Um, no. So we um, we talked a little bit about emceeing. Mm. And this is a very, very important question. Mm -hmm. Um, the streets want to know this. <laughs> this is this is like the one that people listen to the show for. Be honest with you. Um, top five MCs. You warned me about this. One. I, I did. This was. I've been wrestling with it for a couple days. It's a, it's a, it um, is a tough question. Mine yeah. changes weekly. Yeah. I, <laughs> I love lists and I hate lists because you know when when you limit yourself to five or top ten, you you, you fill it up really quickly and then you realize, oh man, I left off that person or that person, but. What I came up with so far is uh, so far as top five would be Rakim. Rakim is the god MC. Mm -hmm. That one's easy. I can plug that one in right away. The uh, the next four in no particular order would probably be Guru. Uh, again, I mean, I think gifted Universal Rhymes. I mean, everything he did was just like the head bob with it. Yeah, um, and then DJ Premier. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> vicious. Um, Karis won it because if he's my spirit animal, he's got to be on there. And I, I go with. Um, with Dre and Chuck D, I, I think I find mm. a lot of parallels between them, and and yet clearly different. Um, but those two, but then I realize I've left out Big Daddy Kane, and I, you know, and then you start to like, <laughs> you start to feel bad about who you left out. Like, Don't come after me, but yeah, I, mean, I, I would nail down those. It's, it's hard. Man. It's hard. It is. It is tough to pick a five. Like I try to approach it from a. Um, I want to round it out a little bit. You know, like you have your different type of MCs, and there some people are not lyric driven they're more message driven yep. and energy driven like Tupac doesn't fall in my top five mm -hmm. you know and a lot, I get a lot of crap about that but 
you know, I think for me, and this is one of those situations where if I was thinking about the, the general public, then I would probably put him in the five. Right. But for me personally, I wouldn't. Just because I'm a more, I like lyrics. I'm someone that's super focused on lyrics. And Tupac was more about the energy. You know, he knew how to translate emotion really well. And um, it's cool, but that doesn't do it for me. I hear you, and there, there's other ones out there that I, that I love almost as much as those first five that I think sometimes get overlooked, like Talib and, and yeah. Steph, and even Common. I mean, there's, there's, there, those are more message-driven at a time when, when hip-hop wasn't going in that way. Right. So they're the ones who are sort of off the radar. And my predilection is always, like, try to find the off-the-radar one. What's the one that everyone's not talking about that should be elevated? Mm-hmm. And that's my natural predilection, which is why I'm always in that kind of old-school, you know, don't ever forget about this guy, you know. It could be why you're a journalist. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe. you like to put people on to different yeah, stuff. But, I mean, you have to have that historical perspective, too. As much as the new is important and we want to keep moving forward and change things, it didn't right. start here. It, it's come from somewhere so absolutely well i mean thanks to you the playlist that goes with this episode is going to be straight fire (laughs) so (laughs) we do um playlists connected to each episode we kind of like um because not everyone knows these songs not everyone knows these artists so we try to put people on the game by creating a playlist uh with the energy of the of the episode yeah with the artists that we spoke about in the episode and even the songs that we played so they can hopefully go grab a bottle of 97 Font Select and check the vibe out. <laughs> Probably won't find it, though. <laughs> it's tough to find a copy of Luan Theory that's in good condition, too. Exactly. exactly. Part of the fun of the hunt. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But yeah, man, this, is, um, this was dope, though. Like, I'm really, really glad that you stopped through to, you know, come through and uh, be a guest on our little show right here. But for, thanks for calling me up. I was uh, humbled and, and pleased, so happy to do it. Definitely, man. Well, it's another episode of Wine and Hip Hop. Peace, y'all. This was a moment in Wine and Hip Hop, brought to you by Crew Love.